0: Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Yeah, speaking of that, I thought this morning that I would spend the first 30 minutes uh, showing you pictures of my grandchild, so, uh, oh, so... Oh, I don't have it up here yet. <laughs> she's coming, she's coming. Give me just a second. So... Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that, I wanted that picture because her, her little face there, I just told her her very first granddad joke, and so she <laughs> thought it was really funny. <laughs> and uh, yes, Elena and I were promoted this week to grandparents. And uh, But we've already turned into the really annoying grandparents. that are going to show you all the pictures and stuff like that. And congratulations to the Shafers as well. So, uh, But actually, s- p- several people have asked, what does it feel like? And so, because it's, it's all brand new to me, one of, the, one of the things that I've felt seriously about this new role, I, I do feel like I look at life a little bit differently now. I, it's kind of a, all of a sudden slaps you in the face a little bit. It gives a person a... Um, I think, I don't know, gives me a whole new view of legacy and what we're leaving behind and the the distant future. You know, all, all four of my grandparents are heroes to me in different ways, all four of them. Uh, they lived, of course, through all sorts of different things in their life, and I think back and all the stories I heard and the time I got to spend with them. Um, and each one of them I can... It's amazing to be able to say this, but each one of them remained faithful to the Lord all the way to the end, just trusting the Lord. And what an amazing legacy that is left in my heart and it paved the way in my own, in my own mind, and my own spiritual life. They, they may not have left us grandkids with a million dollars, but they left us with a very rich inheritance. Do you know what I mean by that? And I think the inheritance is, if I could encapsulate all four of them in one statement, it would be just joyful obedience to the Lord. Just, just joyful. God, to them, it just, I always knew God has been good to them, no matter what, God has been good to them, because that's what they, that's what they wanted us to know, and, and that's how they lived, and so what a beautiful thing. Well, this is exactly that sentiment, that joyful obedience in the Lord for a long time that's exactly what God wanted his people to do in Jeremiah's day too in fact many of them now that we've talked about this we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah we're at a turning point in the book and many of them have been ca- people in Judah God's own people have been carried away now to Babylon in exile and it's not where they wanted to be uh, they'd rather be at home, comfortable in their nice, warm beds in the houses they know and with everybody they know. But God has has moved them on purpose to Babylon, and it's a disciplinary action. They have not been trusting the Lord. They have not been following what God has said. They have been uh, living in idolatry, and God is going to root this out. And God just wanted them now, those that are captive in Babylon you're going to be there 70 years Jeremiah said and God now just wants them to be obedient to the Lord in Babylon just obey me just accept the discipline and get right with the Lord in your heart and just obey what I say now you can't change the past but you can you can change the future and you can find joy in the land that you're in now And that's what he's going to tell them here in this next chapter. We're going to Jeremiah chapter 29 today. And as I mentioned, there's a shift now in this book. We go from messages of judgment to seeing more messages of mercy and future restoration now in the book of Jeremiah. It's going to be sweet. And let's be honest, (coughs) God should have annihilated these people. Okay? Ages ago, uh, he had promised uh, hundreds of years prior what would happen if they would turn from him and do the wicked, wicked things they were doing. But, and God should have just said, you know, I'm done with this generation, I'm done with these people, but, uh, but he didn't. And of course, when we look back and we say, God, you should have annihilated, not us, of course, Lord, don't annihilate us, but them you should have. But thank the Lord, our God is long-suffering, amen? amen. Long-suffering. That is, a good, that is good news to each one of you and me. Chapter 29, it's actually a couple letters the first one is a letter that Jeremiah sends. Still, now, Jeremiah is still living in Jerusalem. A lot of his countrymen and, and people he knows have been now shipped off to Babylon, taken captive in the first and second deportation. And, uh, and there are more deportation to come. But verse 1, this is going to be Jeremiah's letter to them. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders, which were carried away captive, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. After that, Jeconiah the king, and the queen, and the eunuchs, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, and the carpenters, and the smiths, were departed from Jerusalem. By the hand, let's look at verse three, by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent unto Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying. All right, we'll get there. So this is a letter, let me just encapsulate this. This is a letter from Jeremiah, to, uh, who's living in Jerusalem, to captive countrymen in Babylon, Maybe this letter is handed to the same person who's going to be delivering, because verse three, we don't know exactly why this person is going to Babylon, but this person is carrying uh, Jeremiah's letter, perhaps with the tax that is due to Nebuchadnezzar now. For whatever reason, this guy is traveling there. He takes Jeremiah's letter, and notice who was hauled off to Babylon in the prior verses there. All the royalty, the kings, the kings, uh, all of the royal people, the leaders, priests, and prophets, and all the skilled workers, uh, the the smiths and the carpenters, and the first first wave, it was all the just the brilliant and handsome and beautiful people. Second wave, you take all the skilled people and the leaders and all of that, and so now really we're just left with just uh, just a, just a rough bunch back in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is still there with them but put yourself in the story and imagine what's happening here. These people are ripped from their homes. They did not go willingly, okay? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and took them, and this is all part of God's plan, but they were took, taken. So they lose their freedom. They no longer own anything. They have no more national identity. And Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. Babylon's in charge. They lose their relatives. They lose their friends. Some probably died on the journey to Babylon. It's such a rough and long journey. They're living now in a foreign place with people who don't speak their language and and don't really respect them as a people group. So all the people that are now in Babylon, they hate it. It's a horrible place to be. I want to go back home. We own land there. We own stuff. We had a good life there, at least in their minds. Maybe not we weren't serving the Lord, but hey, you know, whatever. But here's what Jeremiah writes to them, starting in verse four. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused, this is important, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. That's God speaking. Let's all be very clear. God says in his letter, I have caused this. God is the one who made this happen. Babylon would never have been able to take people from their homeland if it were not a disciplinary action allowed by God but in his chastening God has not forgotten them and he has not stopped his plan for his people either even the fact that God is still speaking to them and sending a letter to them by Jeremiah is incredible mercy he could have just said I'm done with you but that's not our God And he gives some instructions of how they're now supposed to live while they're in Babylon. Verse five, here we go. Build ye houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. See, grandchildren right there. That ye may be increased there and not diminished. In other words, here's the letter from Jeremiah to the people. Settle in, folks. (laughs) You're going to be there a while. You're going to be there a while. And while you're there, build houses, plant gardens, take spouses, have children, have grandchildren, increase in number and success. You know, this reminds me of God's plan from the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Uh, I, I appreciate the home church. We have no problem obeying that command. By the way, that particular command, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, that command has, God's never canceled that command. Just to be very clear, Uh, if anyone should be fruitful and multiply, it should be God's people. Anyway, in this case, I think God especially, though, wanted his people to multiply because there was a day coming that he was going to bring them out of Babylon and back home. And they needed, uh, they needed a bunch of people. God wanted to have a bunch of His people. And the natural feeling for them would either be to fight back against Babylon or to mope around over what they had lost and become just eors in Babylon. which was, I mean, they had lost everything, if you think about it, as we mentioned. So no matter how they looked at it, living naturally speaking in Babylon, the situation seemed hopeless. What's the point? We're carried here. This is horrible. They don't speak our language. They just want us to become Babylonians. We're not Babylonians. We're Jews. We've lost everything. I've heard of people who deal with, you know, depression. And spe- there's a spectrum, you know, uh, from just discouragement and and despair all the way to depression. But and people who really deal with depression. It, one, the main feeling is they just simply do not want to get out of bed in the morning. They just do not want to face the day. There's just this cloud, and, and this is the, 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 if you think about it, they just, they just don't know what to do with all this heaviness. But as many people who deal with folks in this situation will say, the, the worst possible thing you could do is to stay in bed and not get up out of bed. That's the worst thing you could do, is to give in to those feelings. You must get up. You must get going. And you must ask God to remove that fog. So how do we handle hopeless or despairing or, or depressing even situations? I like what Warren Wiersbe said, and I have it up here for you. One of the first steps in turning tragedy into triumph is to accept the situation courageously and put ourselves into the hands of a loving God who makes no mistakes. And then I would add to to that statement and from this passage here in Jeremiah that we just need to start living life. There's a practical side of this whole thing. Yes, you need to give it all to the Lord. You need to accept the situation, the unchangeable situation that you're in. Know that the Lord is allowing this for a reason. But then get up and get going. Build houses. Plant your gardens. Do what you need to do. You need to to just do this thing. Get going in life. Go to work. Get your life going. Somebody asked me recently about some of the bad things that were happening in their life. And they said, do you think it's a discipline of God in my life? Because I've done some things and do you think this stuff is happening because of these things that I have done in the past? And... (laughs) <laughs> I have said, well, you know, basically, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. Th- th- I am not God, and I don't know. Uh, he does do that, and I'm tra- trying to pile on, you know, shame on you. I don't want to do that to anybody, but I'm just telling you, I don't know. But it doesn't really matter at this point. You can't change the past. You accept the situation courageously, you put your hands into the loving God and say, God, I'm I'm ready to just do this. I'm ready to follow you from this day forward. And I'm gonna do what I can. You learn your lesson where you can and you just get going. And that, I think, certainly is a part of what God is saying to these people in Babylon. Stop moping and don't try to fight back either. Listen, don't fight it. Just accept this. Accept this. And move on and live your life. This is what I want you to do. It, it does no good to keep doing all of that. Jeremiah then takes it a step further, verse 7. Look at this. And seek the peace of the city whereof I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Jeremiah 29 is an amazing chapter, but this verse is an astounding verse to me. I got to admit Not only does he want them to just carry on in life like nothing has happened, but now God wants them to seek the peace of the most wicked, pagan, demonic, hedonistic city in the world. And not only just seek the peace, but pray for the peace of that city. And the reason is given here. Because when they are at peace, when these people are at peace, when Babylon is at peace, you will be at peace. Now, although this verse directly applies to the Jewish people in Babylon, I get that. I think there is a wonderful application, certainly I believe that we could pull f- from for us today as Christians living where we live. In a sense, in a sense, we are like citizens of another country. The, the Bible tells us that very clearly in the New Testament. We're not citizens of another of this country we're citizens of a heavenly country we're here for a while we're sojourners in this land and we're just trying to figure out how to live down here (laughs) because the people we live around don't think like us they don't talk like us they don't have the same thinking as we do and we're trying to figure out what's the best thing to do while we're here especially with the general sentiment that everybody has for california i feel like this applies especially to us this place, this state, especially the big cities, and especially the big cities all over America, it's not just here, they're disgusting. They're dis- I don't know if there's another word for it. They are disgusting in general. Sometimes, you know, we've gone to uh, San Francisco many times, and I'll, I almost every time, single time I go, we're sitting there having some food and sometimes we'll actually be in the city, not just, you know, Pier 39 or something, but I mean in the city. We'll be eating. i looking around at these high rises. Look at people walking by, and I say, I think, how in the world could I could I come here and let's say I wanted to start a church in this town and bring all my children right into the middle of this and be around all of this all day every day? I just don't. I, I just don't see how that. I, I don't. Man, that'd be so so hard. And the feeling, I think any, I think many could agree, any morally minded Christian has that feeling of, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm gonna beat it. I'm running for the hills, I'm gonna get away from all this garbage. But there's some very good perspective here that we can take before we do something like that. First of all, number one, is to think from this passage, I think there's some application, this number one is God placed you in this wicked city. God's telling the people, I placed you in this wicked city. I like what Philip Ryken, who's the president of Wheaton College said, that he said this, The Lord, and I've been thinking about this all week, the Lord does not just call people to jobs and spouses. He also calls them to churches and cities. The Lord doesn't just call people to jobs and spouses. He also calls them to churches and cities. Think about it. We're called. We should only live where God wants us to live. If that's here, fine. If that's somewhere else, fine but we should only live where God wants us to live. God had a very good reason for his people to be in Babylon, and for them, it was to purify them from their idolatry. That was one of the key reasons he put them in Babylon, and by the way, did you know, in the, with the Jewish people and their history, idolatry itself was never an issue again, even to this day. After they left Babylon, they didn't want to any, have anything to do, now they have their own issues. <laughs> But idolatry has not been one since then. God has a good reason for giving us the family he gives us. God has a good reason for putting us in the location he puts us. God has a good reason for putting us in the city that he puts us in, the church that he leads us to, etc., etc. Second of all, God told these people to seek the peace of this wicked city, and what a great application that is for us. Let me just clarify something here. The word peace here is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is still used as the greeting in Israel. Because, and there's a good reason they use it as a greeting, because it means peace, but much more than peace. It means safety, it means welfare, it means happiness, it means success, prosperity, tranquility, contentment, friendship. It it, it has a had a multi-dimensional meaning. Shalom is a beautiful word. And this is what God's telling his people seek shalom. In Babylon, seek it. Christians also here should work towards shalom and do things that make for shalom. Here, we should pick up litter on the streets. We should be good employees at our jobs. We should be kind to the clerk at the bank and at the at the store. We should respect our authorities. We should be politically involved in a in a good and respectful way. We should be good neighbors to the people around us. We should follow the rules when they don't go against God's word. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 says, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. But also remember that the greatest peace and the greatest shalom that we could bring to people in our city is a relationship with Jesus. If we bring Jesus to somebody, we've brought them the prince of peace. So we remember that, and we keep that in our minds. But and the third thing here is to pray for the peace of this wicked city. If there's something we could do right now, and where we live here in this state and in our area, it would be to pray for this wicked city. God wanted to, His people to pray for shalom in Babylon, in idol-worshipping, wicked Babylon, and we ought to ask for the success and the prosperity of the nation and even the state that we live in. Why? Because as it says here, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. If they're at peace, we're at peace. If mama government is happy, everyone is happy. But there were some Jewish patriots, and God is just trying to tell them, listen, settle in. I want you to be there, and I want you just to live like good citizens. But there were some Jewish patriots among the the people there who were undermining peace. And they wanted to fight back, and they wanted to fight against Babylon and rebel. So Jeremiah addresses this next, verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So he says, don't listen to those lying prophets there in Babylon who, uh, who have these people-pleasing dreams about everyone leaving Babylon really quickly. Remember, we talked about Hananiah last week, this false prophet who... Who said, Two years, everybody, two years, and we'll be out of Babylon and we'll be back in Jerusalem. We aren't gonna be here very long. But he was that was just a that was a lie. He said, This is from the Lord, and it was not from the Lord. This was probably the similar word people were latching onto from the prophets there in Babylon. Two years, two years, we'll be out of here. It's, it's something everyone wanted to believe. Even Jeremiah, he would have loved that. <laughs> But it was not the word of god god said 70 years so believe it don't change god's word just because you don't like its implications i'm sure there were people doing the math in babylon 70 years jeremiah says 70 years that means how old am i going to be i won't even be here probably and god is saying don't get restless Don't get restless and start changing what God's word obviously says just because you don't like it. Just because you don't like the timing. You don't like how it's not moving quick enough for you. God's not doing what you think he ought to do. Don't do that. Don't change God's word. God says very clearly here, I will perform my good word toward you. I will do it. By the way, there was a very old man who went through the whole 70 years of captivity and saw God perform his word. His name was Daniel. Daniel was hauled off from a young age, maybe around 20 or so. He was hauled off to Babylon. So he was about 90 years old, and he is a great example of just surrendering to the yoke that God has said to surrender to. He's an example of doing what Jeremiah said. And God prospered him for just living in Babylon, as God told him to. So he's probably about 90, and the Persians are now the superpower, Babylon Babylon, is no more, and one day Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, 70 years later, and he started doing some math. Here's the verses, Daniel chapter nine and verse one, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Verse three, and I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, the same passages we're reading right now, the very same words, And he saw, oh, I'm doing the math, 70 years, that's about, we're about there. And he began to pray. He sought the the face of the Lord by prayer and uh, supplications and fasting. And sure enough, God brought his people back right then. God never forgets what he says. God never forgets what he says. But, he still wants us to pray. Pray it. Daniel is a great example of praying a promise that God has already said. I, well, I don't have time to go into this too much, but think about your own life. Think about a situation that you're in. And Think about what situation could be impacted if you prayed God's word over it. Something, A word from the Lord and you prayed that into that situation. That's what Daniel did. Jeremiah continued now the letter and he wrote one of the most beautiful and now most popular verses in all of the Bible. And it is an amazing verse, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, shalom, and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now this is a wonderful and beautiful verse, but it has been misapplied countless times. (laughs) Elaine and I, we joke every time we go to a Christian graduation. uh, It's it's always the life verse of so many other students for some reason. I don't know why they pick this one all the time. But I don't want to judge. Listen, I I think sometimes people, though, think this verse means God wants them to have wealth and cars and, and homes and just, you know, a really easy life. But if if we understand what God is saying here, it's actually so much better than that. <laughs> it's, it's far beyond that. It's, it's, it's so good. God thinks thoughts of shalom for his people. That is a powerful word. Shalom, again, is something that money and houses and cars cannot give. Shalom. Shalom. Now, we must look at the verse, though, for context. God wanted the Jews in captivity for 70 years. You're going to be there for 70 years. And while you're there, I think this verse is so powerful. God's writing this. I want you captives in Babylon to be thinking about this verse for 70 years. You need to have have this verse memorized. God is still good. He's still thinking good thoughts. He's still thinking thoughts of shalom. He has an end to this there is an expected end and when you get there you're gonna see how good god has been even in all the discipline he's had to pass out even all the nastiness you're going through right now there is an expected end and this is a good god i am a good god i'm gonna bring you back to your land and i'm gonna do something even more and we're gonna talk about that later even more further in the future There's something, you can't even comprehend how good I'm gonna do. And I do praise the Lord that this truth that is not just for Jews. It runs, this truth, this principle here runs all through scripture for all who believe in Jesus. God loves us. He really does love people. He really does. He does have thoughts of shalom. And he has a plan for people's lives. Every person you'll ever meet, God has a plan for that person's life. For Christians, the plan is always, always is an expected end. There's, if you have put your trust in Jesus, there is an expected end to all of this. You know, this, this, this passage wonderfully and beautifully connects to Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good. To them, that's you and me, that love God. To those that love God, if you love God, there is something that's working together for good. To them who are the called according to his purpose. If you're a born-again believer, you love God, then there is good. All things will work together for good to you. No matter how much you've screwed up and been disciplined like Judah, no matter how things haven't turned out in your life like you expected them to no matter how many tragedies you continually face god is still thinking about you and will work all things for good to those who love him there is an expected end and that really does comfort me and here is a description of the expected end that god is looking forward to and here's a hint it is not having nice houses and cars Verse 12, then shall ye call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will... Turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. This is what God's looking forward to. God has it all worked out. I'm going to bring you back, and there's going to be this amazing, genuine relationship on both sides again. Relationship is at the core of God's plan. It's still at the core of God's plan for mankind. He desires this end so much that he came, he sent his son to die on the cross and rise again. I cannot believe how merciful and gracious God is to wicked people. Here God is giving the Jews a love letter after all that they have done. God, and God has even given a love letter today to us. Paul, in amazement, wrote in Romans 5.8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love getting to that verse in, the, in Pastor Mike's tract. I don't know if you've you ever used Pastor Mike's tract to tell someone, to give someone the gospel. You open up, you, you go through these little steps, and you get to that verse. We're all sinners. None of us deserve heaven. But look at this. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and Christ died for you because he wants a relationship. That's why God made you to begin with. So there is a great day coming for the Jews if they will just trust the Lord and there is an expected end for them and there is an expected end for all of this craziness that we live in right now, this nuts world. There is an expected end. The skies will open up one day. We're going to be caught up together with him and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is an expected end. <sighs> wow. There's so much left in this chapter, but I'm not going to get to it. I'm going to end with this. Malcolm Muggridge, listen to this. Just listen. He says this. Plenty of great teachers, mystics, martyrs, and saints have spoken words full of grace and truth. In the case of Jesus alone, however... The belief has persisted that when he came into the world, God deigned to take on the likeness of man. For myself, as I approach my end, I find Jesus' outrageous claim ever more captivating and meaningful. Quite often, waking up in the night as the old do, I feel myself to be half out of my body, hovering between life and death, and with eternity rising in the distance. I see my ancient carcass prone between the sheets, stained and worn like a scrap of paper, dropped in the gutter and hovering over it myself like a butterfly released from its chrysalis stage and ready to fly away. Are caterpillars told of their impending resurrection? How in dying they will be transformed from poor earth crawlers into creatures of the air with exquisitely painted wings? If I told, do they believe it? I imagine the wise old caterpillars shaking their heads. No, it can't be. It's a fantasy. Yet in the limbo between the living and dying, as the night clocks tick remorsely on, I hear those words. I am the resurrection and the life and feel myself to be carried along on a great tide of joy and peace. (laughs) You may be living in some sort of an exile here right now. Uh, you may have your own version of an exile. But there is an expected end. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Who, you come unto me and you will, you will be with me forever. But until then we deal with adversaries, don't we? But there is coming a day an expected end. Lord, there, we cannot wait for that day. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.